Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Our goal is to bring humanity back into the world of software delivery with agile values, principles, and practices. We gather top agilists from around the globe to share insights and help you grow as servant leaders in your organizations. We seek to open minds, change hearts, and deliver value into the world. Now here is our host, professional scrum trainer and agile practitioner, Ryan Ripley. Hey everybody, Ryan Ripley here. This week's episode is actually the recording of a live interview I did with Aptera on their great show, Aptera Live. It's available on YouTube. They do these neat shows every month about different technical topics. This month they asked me to come in and talk about uh, fixing your Scrum, Practical Solutions to Common Scrum Problems. Many of you know that's the book that Todd Miller and I have been co-writing for the past couple years. Well, guess what? It's out. And so on January 21st, it became officially available on Amazon. We're really excited about this. Super proud to finally have this done. Um, we're getting some really great early reviews. But anyways, I answered a bunch of questions about what's it like to write a book, some different Scrum topics, and a few other extra things in here uh, mixed in as well. So hope you enjoy this uh, this interview. If you like, um, please be sure to leave a, a review on iTunes. Your reviews, your five stars, they all help us get the word out about Agile and Scrum and all these great things. Check out the book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, hope you enjoy it. But anyways, here's the interview. Uh, let's check it out. Awesome. Awesome. With a studio audience for the first time ever. Welcome, studio audience. Yeah. Sorry, is the applause sign working? Is that why it's so... <laughs> there we go. Very nice. Sweet. I am super excited about today's Aptera Live, not only because we have a studio audience, but because we have Ryan Ripley, co-author of Fixing Your Scrum, here to talk a bit about the book and, yeah, and answer questions from said live studio audience, both here at Aptera but also anybody tuned in via YouTube live, you can also hit us with questions. I'll get those on the tablet here. We'll make sure they get worked into the conversation and get you your answers. Uh, yeah, Ryan, thanks so much for coming. Uh, you know what? Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's awesome to be down here at Aptera visiting in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I love coming back down highway 30 to check this out. And, uh, yeah, when you guys offer this, it's just such an honor. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. For, uh, anybody tuning in that doesn't know, a uh, couple housekeeping things. One, if you're watching now, you can like, you can comment. Um, please do subscribe so that you'll know next time we go live. We do Aptera Live every other week. So uh, yeah. today's kind of a special timing thing. Normally it's like mid-afternoon and today we're doing evening so that some people could attend. Um, but yeah, subscribe and then you'll get a notification next time we go live. You can also watch these videos after the fact. Um, if you follow on on a social platforms, you'll probably see us posting clips there, but you can watch the whole episode. Um, and yeah, we'll make sure that you can see that from us or see that from Ryan and crew after the fact as well. Um, but yeah, 
can't say it enough, subscribe. And we're going to be talking a lot about fixing your scrum. Uh, it is out now. It's not quite rolled out to like Barnes and Nobles and things like that yet, but yeah. So we, uh, book was officially released yesterday. So it's out on Amazon. Uh, you can buy the paperback there. You can check it out. Uh, pragprog.com for the, the digital copy and buy it, read it. Tell me what you think. Can't wait. I just hope it helps people. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. Right. Yeah. Uh, a little bit about you again, for maybe people that don't know, um, Who's Ryan Ripley? How'd you yeah. get into the, how'd, how'd you get involved with this whole scrum thing? Yeah, that's a, it's been a wild journey. Like over the past 20 years have been like really building up to this moment. And so I started out as a Java developer. So I was, I really loved programming and got into it uh, pretty much straight out of high school. I had a very short college career and then needed to get a job after college wasn't quite right for me at that time. Um, and so I went right into programming and just really fell in love with it. It made sense. I, mean, I really, I, I just, I loved solving problems and I did that for a number of years. And as you, you know, as you progress as a developer, um, your family life changes, your, the season of life changes, and I just couldn't keep up, right? With the Java world, if any Java devs are out there, you know that there's a thousand APIs to solve every problem and it just got to be so big. And I just thought, you know, wife and kids were coming along. It's like, I really need to, to do something different because I'm not thriving in this space anymore. And I really but I still wanted to solve problems, right? And so I went into project management. And I was a uh, PMI certified, PMBOK loving, waterfall project manager, right? And I thought it was a great way to go. And I, so if you're there, I've been there, I, trust me, it's, a, it's not a bad way to be. And there's no judgment at all. But at some point, and it was 2013, something clicked. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I was successful at what I was doing, but I wasn't always happy the way it had to happen, right? It was. You know, it felt like you were pushing people too hard. You were taking away weekends. And, and some, at some point, the guilt steps in. And I wanted to find, like, is there a different way? Could we do something different? You were tired of being that project yeah. manager. Yeah. That's not the fun. I mean, any PM out there right now is going, that's not fun. Yeah. But you have to get results, too. And it's a results-driven world. And I, I firmly believe we're here to deliver. And, but I wanted to see if there was a different way. So in 2013, I took a, a class with Ken Schwaber, one of the co-creators of, of Scrum. And I just, I was blown away. This is a, it was a way to kind of humanely manage work. It was a way to um, bring some joy back into the development team. And so I came back um, as a project manager with some different tools in my toolkit. And I started outperforming my peers. Like our projects were delivering sooner. We were, people wanted to work on the, on the projects that, that the teams that I was working with were on because we were doing things in a different way. And that got me promoted into management, right? So I fell into that leadership trap and, and, and went ahead and became a manager, a director, uh, worked my way up uh, through the Fortune 500 into leadership roles, and then quit one day, right? I, uh, it was weird. I, I was sitting in that seat, and I just... I, for, so for me, uh, I think when you make it is when you get a door to slam, mm. right? That's when you know it's like, I have made it in a company. I can slam the door, and I can like kick back and look out the window, and... And I, was, I had gone into my new office, and I kind of closed my eyes for a minute, I blinked, and I had this moment where I was fast-forwarding 20 years. I was like, I don't want to be, I miss teams. I love working with teams. And so I quit that, um, and it was not necessarily planned. And so it was a very interesting conversation with my wife that night. It was a rather abrupt thing, but it was able to find a, a scrum master role and just really focused on that for a number of years and really like honed that skill and worked on my craft and then uh, Scrum.org has always been very supportive of me. It's a great organization. Um, and eventually, I, you know, I, for a number of years, I resisted the call to be a trainer. I was like, I really just want to work and be a Scrum Master. And then a few years ago, I finally said, yeah, let's do this. And I've been training ever since. And I've just, you know, it's taken me all, all over the world, um, all over the country, and have just like have loved every day of it. That's awesome. I love that phrase, humanely managed yeah. projects. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, because I think anybody that's worked in or around uh, software development knows that uh, when pressure goes up, uh, sometimes the humanely part gets lost. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it can be really messy um, and painful. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. So you've been a trainer for a number of years uh, now, and at some point in that, you decided, I'll write a book about some of these <laughs> scrummy things. How, how did that happen? I mean, where did, 
how'd that enter the picture? So I, I co-wrote this book with, uh, with Todd Miller. He's another uh, professional scrum trainer with scrum.org. You know, we go into a lot of companies and at one point we just sat back and thought we are seeing the same things over and over and over again. And, and we're solving them. I mean, we're trying different ways, different methods, but we are seeing the same things in, in companies trying to adopt Scrum, just, just repeating. And we thought, you know what? Why don't we capture all those things that we see? Let's capture all the anti-patterns, all the issues, all the struggles that these companies are having. And let's actually, instead of just cataloging them, like let's pretend we're going into a company with this problem and let's just describe how we would try to solve it. Like how would we diagnose it? How would we, what questions would we ask? Which liberating structure would we use to, to help you know, discover what's going on? Like, how would we facilitate to some kind of good outcome and just give it all away? Like, how would we as consultants approach it? And at first, people thought we were crazy. They're like, you're not going to get a consulting gig again. You know, you're giving away too much. We actually, one of our praise quotes in the book, one of, a fellow um, Agile coach, was he's furious with us. He's like, you guys, what do you... He's like, you have, like, you're sharing stuff that will cost a lot of us business. And I'm... I don't think that's true. I think he was being nice, but like we really tried to make this an, an immensely practical book so that for, the, for one part, we can get asked more difficult questions, right. right? We don't want to go in and solve the same problems over and over and over. We think teams can solve these on their own with a little guidance. And so we put this book together to do that, to help scrum masters, to help scrum teams, you know, take an honest look at where they're at. And if they want to improve, we've given them, you know, 250 pages of ideas on how to get better. Uh, and if they do that, hopefully that means the whole community advances uh, and we get to go into companies and try to solve even more richer, you know, more difficult problems. That's awesome. Um, in terms of writing the book, I'm super curious about yeah. this. What's that experience like? Different? <laughs> some, I mean, I'm sure it was different once you got into it than what you yeah. expected going into it. But yeah, I mean, how do you how do you break that down? First of all, you say we've got, you know, all these anti-patterns and basically yeah. you've got more content than you probably would have an easy time fitting into 250 pages. But right. yeah, I mean, where do you start? Where do you, I mean, and I guess maybe tell us a little bit about your co-author. I know I'm throwing questions. At no, you. no, you're good. It, it, I actually almost failed. And so writing a book was almost like, it was almost dead on arrival. Right. So I, I, I reached out to Prague Prague and that's, they're a wonderful publisher. Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas are two icons in the agile industry. They're signers of the manifesto. Uh, and they just, they've, they've built this wonderful publishing company where authors like me and, and Todd and others, we can show up with, uh, with ideas and they're very supportive. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, getting to publication is difficult, but, but once we got there, just a, a super, uh, amazing experience with Prague Prague. Now for myself, like I took on this book originally by my, uh, on my own. And so about a year, maybe six months into it, like I just flamed out. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly difficult to sustain that writing habit and still work full time and, you know, family, wife and three kids and all that stuff. And I just got overwhelmed. Yeah. Like it, I, it wasn't going great. And I reached out to Todd, who's one of my uh, best friends in, on this planet and just said, Todd, I'm struggling. I need help. Do you want to jump in and and really like let's really just focus like let's get a really clear message for this book and and let's roll. And he was immediately like, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. And we, uh, we got reset. We got realigned on, on what we're trying to do. The focus was enhanced. It's almost like we started using the scrum values to actually write the book. Um, and it, it just got better from there. And so it was part of it, you know, the writing process, it's incredibly lonely on your own. It's incredibly fun with a partner. And, uh, and we just, we were able to, we really just turned that corner, right? He, we're, we're both two very different people. Um, he comes from a product background. He's definitely a good scrum master, but product the product owner role is his jam. Um, and he's got some good executive experience. The scrum master role is definitely where my heart's at with some leadership experience as well. And so we were able to, to really cover each other's blind spots a bit. You know, he would write a chapter and I'd come back and say, hey, I got a good story here. And, and then we'd start, I mean, we would just start geeking out on this stuff and capture it. And, and I think that collaborative um, aspect really saved this book uh, because writing is difficult. Um, it's, you would think like the muse just shows up and you just start writing, but there are days where you're like ready to break your laptop in half and just, I cannot get this idea out cleanly. And, but having a, a partner like Todd to, to really help, you know, we would soundboard off, each, soundboard off each other and just really support one another. I think it worked out better. We actually ended up using Scrum to write the book. So we had a Trello. I want to hear more about that <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining like setting sprint goals for a chapter. We actually, um, we actually did have a sprint goal per chapter. 
Um, where, and we set it up as like a story map. Here's what we want to accomplish with each chapter, right? And, uh, but we set up a Trello board. So we went into Trello. We're like, here's all the chapters we need to write. Here's all the stages they go through. Because even when, when you write a chapter, right, you're not, just, you're not done. It goes through technical edit, goes through copy edit, it goes through all sorts of revisions, and then they do a separate editor for punctuation, and just revision after revision. It's like you write it once and revise it a thousand times, and, um, and we needed to keep track of that. So we would move the card for each chapter to different stages, and, um, but we ended up working in you know, week-long sprints. What are we going to get done this week? How are we going to work together? How are we going to collaboratively get this next chapter across the finish line? And that level of transparency really helped, too, because then our publisher could see where we're at, they could see what we needed. It really, I mean, it actually changed the game. Um, I think those two things, uh, making the work transparent, which it's just good practice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just something we ought to do anyways. Um, but then having a good writing partner um, to really help you know, bring this book home, I think those were the two things. Uh, the final one, you'll see uh, Dawn is on the cover as well as our editor. She's amazing. Like Don, she really, she made Todd and I sound far more intelligent than we deserve. You know, we would give raw ideas in the man. I wish I, we should actually publish like a raw chapter and then show what Don did to it. Uh, she deserves a lot of credit. It, um, yeah, she made us sound great and really took our ideas and refined them into um, some really nice, elegant paragraphs that I, I'm proud to say that we get to take credit for, but we had a really awesome editor as well. But the whole process, I mean, it's a wonderful experience, but man, there are days where you're just, I mean, there were many days where Todd and I would text each other going, why did we sign that contract? So, but uh, to tie that off, I mean, we just signed another deal. And so we'll have it, oh, we're, wow. we're starting another book. And so it must not have been that bad of an experience because we're right back at it. You're so in for another sprint. We're in for another sprint. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Very excited to see what comes next. Um, you know, we've had, uh, I think, at least one advanced copy kind of made a little bit of circulation yeah. here. Um, and uh, John Fazzaro, our Agile coach, posted a bunch of his notes from going through it, um, which, you know, he kind of posted those in little blocks. And so you could see people in Slack reacting even just to his observations and things cool. like that. And uh, yeah, so I know there's, there's some excitement here. Um, yeah, I'd love to get into some of your like biggest takeaways. Were there I guess when you started outlining the book, you probably had a good sense of what you wanted to say, but I'm curious as you started writing it, were there any ideas that sort of emerged along the way sort of in that, I don't know how much refinement was happening along the way. Yeah. And, and I'm curious too, were there ideas that you started out to get in the book and then realized maybe that one doesn't make the cut or that one doesn't, it gets shoved out um, to make room for something new or something more important. So yeah, we definitely started with an outline, a good idea of what we wanted to do. But then what we found is that, and this was a neat side effect of, of writing the book, I think, is that as you write these ideas and you get them out, your ideas get refined as you go. And I, I don't remember where, where we were. I think we, Todd and I might have been in Germany um, for a, a Scrum event or Scrum.org event. And we were sitting down at dinner after a long day. And we had this realization. We were talking about the Scrum Master chapter and we kind of got stuck. Um, because he and I have some extreme views on this. Like we really, we really put a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of a scrum master. And finally we're sitting there having dinner and I don't remember who said it. We might've helped build this idea, but, but finally at one point we're just like, you know what? The majority of these anti-patterns in the book are the result of a scrum master not doing their job. And we just kind of sat back and went, whoa, wait a minute. We just put like a majority of, of these issues on the, right at the, at the feet of a scrum master. But we believe that. And that really changed the way we approached the chapter. It was like, look, Scrum Masters, you've got to be on your game. You are honing your craft constantly. Like, you are a linchpin in this Scrum team. Like, if you are not removing organizational impediments, if you're not fulfilling the, your three levels of service correctly, if you're not on your game, a lot of things fall apart. And that really, like, that kind of shift in our thinking, because we really hadn't thought that before. I, I think another one was the sprint goal. Like, I think that is one of the most underrated and misused or underused aspects of the Scrum framework. People seem to think this is, this is like an optional thing. Yeah. It's mentioned 27 times in the Scrum Guide, right? It's, one, it's the most, I believe it's one of the most referenced aspects of Scrum in the Scrum Guide as it sits today. It's clearly not optional. And the way that, and what we wanted to do is come up with language that really made it clear that, you know, this sprint goal is important. Like you really need to set, like directionally, it tells a development team why they're doing the work. 
But that's not enough because that's in every book, that's in every podcast, that's in every video. We're like, how do we take this further? Like, how do we actually refine this point into something interesting? And finally, we said, you know what? This is how you connect to your customer. The sprint goal is how, and for those out there that, that aren't, you know, a quick description of the sprint goal, every sprint we try to have this, like, this larger vision of what we're trying to achieve, like this, this outcome that we're after so that we can stay focused as we work in a sprint. And what we realized was, you know, it's not enough to say it should be written in, you know, in terms that a customer would appreciate. It's not enough to say it's outcome driven. We really decided like we had to say, this is how a development team, this is how the people doing the work stay connected to the needs of a customer. Mm -hmm. And so if the sprint goal does not really uh, evoke that kind of feeling about between the, the dev team and the customer, it's not good enough. Try again. And that really for and we started using that with our teams that we coach and with, in our classes, and it really forced teams to realize, yeah, this is important. Like this is how we prevent apathy on the dev team. This is how we stop dev teams from just chopping through features and delivering things they don't even know why. It really it brought purpose, which is incredibly important. Like purpose back to to the to the work of the dev team, and that was another one of those like offhand comments that we made that actually turned out to be something totally different than what we believed prior to writing the book. Yeah. Uh, I will say having attended training with you yeah. in the past, um, it was my second time going through scrum master training, um, last year and we had a pretty large group from Aptera going through that and sprint goals stuck out, not just to me, but to a number of other people there that had been through scrum training in the past because yeah. I think everybody experiences this that when you're first exposed to scrum ideals, which might not even be through much formal training. You just, you hear a little bit here, you hear a bit there or somebody else on your team says, Hey, we should start doing this. And you just, you start, <laughs> you start trying to practice yeah. it before you've really understood a whole lot of the, the theory behind it. Sure. Um, you do, you start to experience anti-patterns or places where scrum seems to kind of fail you or like, Oh, well it doesn't really account for this or that or yeah. the other thing. And, and, and there's, um, it's a framework, right? You know, there's meant to be some flexibility and some interpretation. I feel like sprint goals is one of those things that very few people latch onto in a first pass or right. a first practice of scrum. But then when you go back a second time and you're like, man, I hope I hear some things that would help me knock out some of the problems I'm encountering again and again on a second pass. It's one of those things that sticks out like a, like, Oh my gosh, yes. Why are we not putting an emphasis on that? And wouldn't that really help re-anchor all the work that everyone's doing? Yeah, I, I'm really glad that stood out uh, in the class we did. I mean, it, it's just so so directionally important, right? I mean, with, with the sprint goal, uh, not to not to turn this into like a sprint goal discussion, but I mean, think about what happens when you set uh, the outcome you're after in advance, mm -hmm. and then disruptions happen, or work comes in from the side door where, hey, this is now more important. You're giving your teams the opportunity to say no, right? No, we have this sprint goal. We can't, this is what we're focused on. This is what we have committed to. This is, uh, we're respecting our stakeholders by staying, you know, directionally aligned to the sprint goal. We got to say not yet to this work you just asked us to do. You're creating this ability to actually complete something. You know, we're, we're so good at starting things. We're mm -hmm. so good at ramping up projects. We're so good at saying go, but how good are we at finishing, right? I think that's a real problem. And, and having these sprint goals we're, we're empowering dev teams and scrum teams to basically say, no, not yet. We're not going to do this new thing yet. We're not going to do this other thing yet. We're going to finish our work. We're going to deliver something. We're going to get feedback and then see if this thing that you're trying to distract us with is actually valuable. And I think that, that alone is one of the most powerful things you can hand to, to your teams. The ability to say no, or at least not yet, right. and let them just focus on completing their work. And you get that for free through a sprint goal. I think that's just an amazing benefit. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to kind of give the folks that are here, um, and the folks that are watching online a chance to ask some questions as we've got you here. Um, so while we kind of get set up for that, um, I want to give you the chance are besides sprint goals, <laughs> what are things that stick out to you? I guess either things that seemed like we got to get this in the book or things that when you're going back and you're doing retraining or a second round of training in a company, you're like, this is one of those things that I know is going to answer some questions people have about their first pass or their first attempt at, at running Scrum. Yeah, I, I think what we had to get into the book, like what Todd and I were both passionate about, is this idea of, 
of clarifying and refining the role of Scrum Master. This is really a Scrum Master book. But what we really wanted to get across is that Scrum Masters, you have the ability to change your, your company's culture. But you have to get out of the Scrum team. And I don't mean quit. I don't mean leave the Scrum team. What I mean is go out in the organization, make friends, work with finance, work with HR, work with legal. If your focus is only on the product owner and the dev team, and if you're not venturing out and actually helping other parts of the organization change, you're setting yourself up for half of the impediments in this book. And we really tried to hammer that in and really make sure it was clear that your job is to work in the organization as well. We don't need um, you know, this, idea, this idea that agile coaches work in the organization and scrum masters only work with teams. I mean, that's just such a, such a, a terrible myth that really undermines the value of a scrum master. I mean, it's, the scrum master should be uh, working with all aspects of the company because one of the, one of the dirty secrets of agile transformations, right? Uh, and when, and we, you know, we all run into this in the industry quite a bit. They just send IT to training. So we get a bunch of IT teams showing up to training classes. And I'll ask, like, where's HR? Where's finance? Where's legal? And the IT teams are like, well, why would we invite them? It's like, well, because you're about to change the way that you work. And that's going to collide directly with the way they work. Absolutely. Yeah. And plus, I mean, on a scrum team, it's cross-functional. It's self-organizing. There's no more business versus IT. There's no more us versus them. Your business people work hand in hand with IT, with, with DevOps, with legal, with HR, with finance. I mean, we're all one team delivering an outcome for a customer. There's no more us and them. I mean, we all have to be in this together. So I think the big one was, you know, getting that scrum master, get a little uncomfortable, go learn some, you know, for me, I have a programming background. I love the scrum master role, but I went and got business degrees. Like I really wanted to be able to speak to business people correctly in a coherent way to read a balance sheet, to understand the pressures of budgeting, just so that I could go in and intelligently speak to them about the benefits of Agile and Scrum. If I don't do that, we're going we're gonna to butt heads constantly when we're trying to, you know, drip funding versus annual planning versus, I mean, all these things just start colliding uh, and, bat, and half the book emerges, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess, again, this is sort of a which thing do you want to talk about sort of question. But when it comes to anti-patterns, what, I don't know, what's the anti-pattern that you see occur most often, like one year, two year, three years into companies adopting Scrum? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many of these that emerge. I think, um, so one is just, I mean, I, I could talk about sprint goals all day. I'll, I'll get away from that one. But I think one of the, the larger anti-patterns that we see happens with the product backlog. Um, and, and this is really Todd's jam. He'll be happy we talked about this. It's, uh, the product backlog is just unruly. This turns into like this warehouse where we store every idea everyone has ever had ever. And it's, um, I actually, I do a keynote where I'll, I'll get up on stage and, and I'll ask a question. You know, it's, we're at a scrum conference, so it's a silly question. I'll, all right, who here has a product backlog? And all the hands go up and everyone gets excited. Yeah, I've got one. Way to go. I win. And I'm like, all right, leave your hand up if you have an item on your product backlog that's older than six months. I was like, yeah, we're still there. They're all happy. Their hands are up. And I'm like, well, how about one year old? And they're like, oh, wait, this isn't going to be good. <laughs> And so, like, the, the realization sets in that I don't want my hand to be up. Yeah, but high score doesn't win. No, this is, we're going for golf scores, not, not basketball scores. But, and so I'll ask, you know, one year, two year, three year, four year, and the record's nine years. And so I actually stopped the keynote. I asked the, the, the staff to bring the lights up. We got a microphone to this guy, and he's all excited. Yeah, it's nine years old. I'm like, this is not good. Like, this is not something you want. And uh, I'm like, and I actually asked, I'm like, sir, let me guess, you're in finance. And he goes, well, yeah, how'd you know? And I'm like, this is a mainframe change on one of the systems, isn't it? He's like, how'd you know? And it's, well, I've worked in this space. And, and I know that the, and so he talked about it a little bit. But at the end of his description of what it was, he said, but we have to do this. And I was stunned. I'm like, sir, it's been nine years. You're never going to do this. Like, this change will never happen. He's like, no, 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 Ryan, but it must. I'm like, it's been nine years. And, and finally, the light bulb went off for him. But but like these unruly product backlogs and these um, unrefined product backlogs and just like this whole, like this idea that it's got to contain everything forever. Like these should be minimal, but sufficient, right? The, here's the 20 things we think we're going to do where, I mean, these are magic numbers, right? Go with what works for you. But I mean, how does a development team or a product owner or an organization for that matter, even keep track of 200 items on a product backlog? How do you keep them refined and relevant? 
And then what happens when you have a sprint review and new ideas come in from your stakeholders? Where do those go? Do they just get crammed on the bottom? Does it? And so it just becomes one of these really weird situations where they're trying to create or recreate this idea of the, of the old school requirements document, right? They want their old requirements documents back, so they create these massive product backlogs. And it's, it's like, no, part of good product ownership is deletion, Mm. Right. You want to delete these things, you know, you're not going to do because, you know, new ideas are, are going to come in and this is low value stuff. And I think that's one that that pops up with every new team. It, it pops back up on the first, second, third pass. There's this horrible fear that we're going to. Oh, what if we delete a really good idea? And I'm like, you know what? That would be an amazing thing, because yeah. guess what? If you delete a really good, promising, important idea, guess what's going to happen? It'll come back. Yeah. Absolutely. And it'll come back again. Like. You're not losing anything. You're going to rediscover it. And this time you might value it higher and it might get done. But again, I, I get back to the scrum values. How does a team focus on a product vision that is supported by a product backlog with a thousand items on it? I don't think you can. The cognitive load alone, like your brains just start to melt a little bit. It's like, and then despair sets in. We're never going to get through all of this. It's never going to get all done. And yeah, I, that one is really, it seems simple, right? too big of a product backlog. Well, that's not a big deal, but the ramifications as that plays out is just, Oh, it, it just gets so weird. Yeah. We do have a question coming in here. Well, it's a, it's a two parter. So, uh, so this is from Luke. He says, we've recognized distributed teams are going to be more common in the future. We've already started looking at different ways to work remote and engage teammates who aren't physically in the office with us. And a couple things we've tried are treating the whole team remote. If there are remote teammates so uh, we've also done creating team pods that have like an open zoom bridge so the whole team is on that throughout the day um, whether you're in the office or whether you're remote yeah um, and creating sort of informal non-work related like virtual water coolers uh, to talk about things that are not work related um, as well to kind of build camaraderie so two questions about that one what are ideas you've seen prove successful in facilitating building or engaging distributed teams and two, uh, it's really easy for remote retrospectives to quickly feel stale. Yeah. Um, so we've tried a lot of tools um, to help engage and like spice up remote retros, but it's still a struggle. So what have you seen prove successful? So question one, um, what have you seen as a successful way to engage teams um, and build teams, facilitate teams? And then two, specifically with retros, what works? Yeah, so I think to the first question, I'm really impressed with some of the latest versions of Zoom. I think some of the, the Zoom breakout rooms has made it uh, very possible to facilitate some, uh, some interesting meeting types, some interesting liberating structures. Um, I've, I've been experimenting with that quite a bit for the past six months, and I've had a lot of success with that. So I think uh, Zoom is on the right track. We're trying to get people to speak face-to-face I mean, when we're distributed, that's video to video or camera to camera, however you want to look at it. And I think Zoom has really jumped ahead as, a, as my preferred tool to do that. Um, but I think we're trying, the, the issue with distributed teams, I think one of the big issues is transparency of work. And so really trying to, whether, you know, whether you're using physical team boards in different locations and you're trading pictures of them every day, or you're using something like Trello, Jira, Azure DevOps, whatever it is, I think a commitment to keeping the tools up to date. Like that's got to be like one of the prime directives of a distributed team. We all agree that that we will in real time update these tools so that the progress and the state of our work is transparent. There's probably some other policies that need to exist as well, right? We need frequent check-ins of work. You cannot sit on code for a day or two. You really need to be checking in small frequent changes over and over and over so that other people can see the progress and what's happening um, and really get in there and help as well. I think there are now some really nice remote um, IDEs, some, some code editors that, that allow for pair programming across distances that I think have become really important. I still think pair program, programming is very possible um, uh, over video using these, these new IDEs. I think that's interesting. To the second question about retros, uh, I'm a big fan of David Horowitz's work um, at Retrium. I think he's got a great tool for, for retrospectives. I highly recommend you check out David's work. Um, I also think uh, this is a difficult space. Like a retro is kind of this, this intimate moment for the team where they are 
Um, they're really talking about their struggles, their fears, their challenges, uh, working together as a group. I think uh, if I were in this person, if I, I think it was Luke who, who asked this question, maybe have a retro about how we retro as a team. Like go meta for a, for a retrospective and ask the team what could work, what, uh, what could be beneficial. Maybe check out Retrium. Um, I'll give a third tip here. So Mark Kilby and Johanna Rothman have written a brilliant book on, on working with distributed agile teams. I cannot recommend it enough. I think it's just, they've taken a very deep dive into this topic. Um, they've got some good recommendations as well. So hopefully a few of mine have helped, but if all of mine have fallen flat, uh, Johanna and Mark will certainly help pick me up. Awesome. Um, I want to extend an invitation to our studio audience here. If you have uh, any questions, just throw a hand up and we'll, we'll either have you come up here or I'll reiterate the question. We'll figure it out. Um, and then a reminder, if you're watching live on YouTube, you can also ask questions there in the chat box. They will get back to me and I'll make sure that they work their way into the conversation. Um, and whether you're watching live or watching this after the fact, uh, hit the subscribe button. Um, a simple Google of Ryan Ripley will help you not only find the book on Prague Prague, where you can download yeah. it digitally, um, you can purchase paperback on Amazon, and then it'll also be rolling out to Barnes and Nobles uh, here in the near future, next month or so. Um, but there's a couple other ways you distribute content as well, right? You've got a podcast. Yeah. So the Agile for Humans podcast is, uh, I think it's still the largest Agile podcast on iTunes. Um, the book is now a new channel, ryanripley.com, at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. I mean, if you want to talk about Scrum and Agile stuff, like if you initiate the conversation, just be warned, I can talk about this forever. So... I mean, but if you want to chat about this, if you have a question, if you want to talk about classes, whatever it is that's on your mind, reach out. Um, I will answer. You know, that's a that's either that's either a promise or a warning. I'm not sure which. Um, but yeah, please do reach out. Awesome. Live studio audience questions, <laughs> comments, concerns. John, how do I know? Yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate that. Yeah. So the question here is related back to the uh, product backlog. What's the issue with having too much detail? I know that was a, a really nutshell version of that. but <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's, it's an important question. And I think one of the, I mean, the super simple answer is you don't get anything done, right? So if you're, if you're concerned about having the most perfect, prettiest, most awesome product backlog, that has the most complete detail and the, it's the best ever, well, you're gonna spend a whole sprint or 10 sprints getting it there. And in the meantime, your customers don't have anything in their hands. And so at some point, we have to stop and do the work. Um, a good friend of mine, Woody Zool, he has a, just a, a brilliant saying, I wish I'd come up with this, I didn't, this is all Woody Zool. Uh, he says, it is through doing the work that we, we learn about the work we need to do. And basically, in my Hoosier Midwest kind of like translation, it's get started, get her done. Right. I mean, it, it's through getting things done, delivering that you get the feedback that you know that you're doing the right things. Right. And uh, we can plan forever. But the second that plan um, comes face to face with a customer, we're going to learn some things we didn't expect. So I would rather I would I would rather learn sooner than later. Right. And so the, the dangers of trying to figure out everything up front, the dangers of trying to be perfect is that, I mean, first of all, you won't get anything done. Um, if you do get something done, you're probably late because there are people willing to experiment. Like another, like I'm, I'm a big fan of just sharing kind of these, these dirty secrets of agile where it's like, you know, people are like, yeah, we're going to go agile and we're going to adopt scrum and we're going to do big upfront planning. And I'm like, wait a minute, you have signed up for experimentation. You've signed up for a framework that will help you learn whether or not a hypothesis is true or false. Sometimes it's false. You're going to learn that the product you thought was awesome, no one wants. Move on to the next thing. You're going to learn that the feature that was just the, the most amazing thing and you planned it out perfectly, no one wanted. You know, you want an example like Clippy. Remember Clippy from Microsoft Office? Like, you know, they thought it was the most clever thing in the world. If you don't remember Clippy, it was this thing that would pop. Hey there, it, looked like, it looks like you're trying to build a resume. And it, it, was, it was cool. It was actually advanced software for the 90s, right? But no one wanted it. And if they had just like built a little bit of it and, and tried to get some feedback, they would have prevented millions of dollars in waste. And so, I mean, there's just so many risks. I think the further away you are from customer feedback, the greater risk you're taking on in your project. 
And so if you're trying to figure out the best plan up front, you're taking on enormous risk every step of the way. Does that make sense? Does that help? When do they stop? Yeah, so the question is, when a team is doing product backlog refinement, uh, the question is like, when do they know to stop? And I think the, the moment they know that they can stop is when they have a reasonable plan to get the first few steps going. Like, let's get to something deliverable. Let's get this in front. Of, when you feel like that, yes, these first three or four steps, if we put this in front of a person, we could get valuable feedback, you're ready to move to the next thing to refine. It's small enough to deliver. It's, it's well understood enough to get something out. Um, but it's not perfect and it never will be. That's the, that's the whole thing. Like even like publishing a book, like I was flipping through it the other night and I'm like, wow, I wish I had said something a little different or wow. I wish I had added this, this sentence would be, and it's, you know what? It's never perfect. It's never done. This is good enough. Like if people read this and apply it, I think it will help people with our products and with our features. I do not like this whole idea of, of good to great. Like this will be contra this, uh, maybe it's controversial. I think great is the enemy of good enough, right? Let's get something good enough out there. Let's actually finish something because the majority of the world is terrible at finishing things. Let's be better. Let's finish something. Let's get it out in the world. Let's get the feedback. And when it's good enough, when people are using it, when they're happy, let's move on to the next thing. We don't have to be great. It needs to be good enough, uh, minimal, but, minimal but sufficient, right? And let's do the next thing. And that means we experiment, we try things, we learn. Sometimes we fail, but we deliver. Like first and foremost, I, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to go into rant mode too much, but I think there's a few different types of agilists in our community. And some of them are more of the, we're going to coach through these things and we're going to, and there's a great place for them. I think they're very valuable, but we're, we're going to talk through everything. We're going to coach through everything. We're going to, you know, it, it's more of this, this um, theoretical stance. I'm more pragmatic. Like I believe delivery first and foremost, and then let's get good at the agile stuff. Let's, good at, let's get good at Scrum, but we have to ship, right? We have to ship. And the more you want to plan, the further you, wait, you get away from shipping, the more uncomfortable I am with the risk. But Ryan, how will our estimates be good? Estimates are, oh, you're, okay. <laughs> I see what you just did. No, so estimates, right? They're never good. They're never right. They're a planning tool. And each and every sprint, we're going to learn something. And after each and every sprint, you're going to update your forecast. It's just like the weather, right? I keep looking at my phone. It's like, wow, is it going to be snowing when I drive back to Valparaiso on, on Friday? Yesterday it was yes. Today it's no, right? The estimate changed. The forecast is different. Software is the same thing, right? Just because we, think that, just because we thought this initiative was going to be 12 months, by the way, if you're trying to like plan 12 months perfectly, good luck. Um, but just because we thought it was 12 months and it turns out to be 16, but customers are happy and the value is high, that's a win. Like you learn something really awesome, right? I, yeah. And if you really want to get good at estimates, like maybe this is interesting to people. Like a lot of people set up these workshops, learn how to estimate better. These are garbage. All right. I do not believe in these at all. If you want to get good at estimates, understand what an estimate actually is. Actually, George Dinwiddie just published a really good book, um, software on software estimation. Check it out. I'm going to distill some of it for you. An estimate has three pieces to it, all right? So an estimate, first and foremost, is the work. So if I'm a developer, and for, for Pete's sake, do not hire me to be a developer. It would be disastrous for you. But let's pretend that I am, I'm a developer, and uh, you've asked me to estimate something. Well, the work itself, I think we're actually, the studies have shown, the stats have borne out that we're pretty good at estimating that. Like if you ask, like, all right, if I'm not interrupted and if it's ideal day and all that, yada, 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 that never happens, but yada, 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 anyways, we're pretty good at estimating that. Two weeks, that's pretty solid. But that's only one component of an estimate. The next component is the accidental complication. These are all the, thing, all the reasons that we're awful at our work. Build server's always busted. I'm assigned to three different teams. I have to work on five different projects. The product owner isn't available. The scrum master hasn't removed this impediment. Uh, we don't fully understand why we're doing this work. And the list goes on and on and on and on. All the things that, that delay, hurt, or impede delivery, right? And it turns out we are really awful at estimating how bad we are at our work. Like, this is really hard to estimate. And so that's where you run into um, all of these, these buffers, right? We'll take your original estimate and multiply it by two, and that's, that's safe. 
Or uh, my favorite one of all time is take the original estimate, double it, and then change the unit. And so let me explain this. Well, it's really two weeks, so double it to four weeks, change the unit, that's four months. And then you're never wrong, right? And it, all these schemes, because we're terrible at estimating ex accidental complication. The third part is essential complication. That's life is complex. Life is going to happen, right? I was once working at, a, at an orthopedics manufacturer in the Midwest, and uh, we were sitting inside working. We were inside one moment. We were outside the next. A tornado ripped through the building, and suddenly it's raining on us. And it's like, okay, this is going to cause delays, okay? Like, this is going to, this is going to be an issue. Disaster recovery worked great, but all of our projects were late. You can't plan that. Don't worry about that. You adapt to that. So when people say we want to get better at estimates, if we're good, if we're decent at estimating the work and we can't control the, you know, the, these, these um, active God events that are going to happen, what can we get better at? Well, it's accidental complication. Remove everything that's impeding delivery. Remove everything that makes it hard to go from idea to production. Get rid of all of those blockers and, and the speed bumps and all those traps. And that's then magically your estimates get better, right? Yeah. So solve your organizational dysfunction, scrum masters, right? And the estimates get better. Is that fair? Okay, rant over. <laughs> I should have issued like a trigger warning when mm. I brought up the word estimates. Yeah, you bring up estimates and I'm just, oh, here we go. <laughs> so, um, well, another reminder again, if you're watching online, you can ask us uh, questions. We had another one come in here. Uh, how do we balance hashtag no estimates with the need as a contracting house to fulfill the need of our clients to understand the cost of a project before signing a contract with us? Yeah, I, so hashtag no estimates, it's an interesting conversation, but I think there are economic realities today that like when, when a customer asks, how long will this take and how much will it cost? These are very reasonable questions, right? And so I personally have moved more towards flow metrics. I really want to talk about cycle time throughput, item aging and whip limits. Um, I think through those flow metrics, we can become predictable but that still doesn't solve this upfront challenge. And, and what I'm finding is um, the older I get, the more, I guess, I, I'm not so worried about, um, I, I just wanna be honest about the work, right? And so if I'm working in this situation where you have to have the most perfect upfront estimate, um, I'm gonna say, look, I believe this is 10 sprints. This is what 10 sprints cost. This is our run rate plus our, and we have to have profit and all this. So whatever it is, this is our run rate. So it's this amount of money times 10, right? And at the end of those 10, you have an option. Uh, you can continue working with us because we've delivered, you're excited about this, your customers are happy, we've delivered value, or you can stop. And if you stop, here's the entire code base, here's the whole test suite, here's a professional a uh, set of high quality um, applications or packages or whatever you've created. And you can take this anywhere you like and continue or stop or do whatever you think. Um, is that going to work everywhere? The answer is no. Right. And I think we have to decide as, I mean, this is right up your alley, right? You have to decide as a, I mean, Aptera is a, is a, is a leader in this marketplace. Um, you guys do great development work and you have to, I'm sure you're balancing this all the time too. But for me, it's, uh, this is what I can honestly commit to, right? I can commit to these. And if we get done in eight sprints and you're happy, don't pay me for the last two, right? You get to walk away with spending less, still getting high value. Everyone's happy. I think this is where uh, the world's moving. If you read Joy Inc. by Richard Sheridan, he describes how he has set up his consultancy firm up in Michigan like this. I mean, Menlo is one of the uh, big players in this space. I know Aptera is one of the big players in this space. I think it's the transparency, you know, and I, I don't feel like I'm giving this person the, the silver bullet answer they want, but I want to raise the transparency in these contracts, right? So when you actually commit, to, oh yeah, it's 12 months and this is the price fixed, are you being 100% transparent about what that means? Are you actually telling your customer this is exactly what you're going to get and this is what could go wrong and this is what happens, we're going to change order you to death the second we get the opportunity to do so? And I, I mean, for me, let's raise the transparency, Let's sell sprints. Let's let people in and out of contracts easily. Let's, let's be more of a partner. Um, 
and that can work. You know, balancing all that, I mean, those are business decisions you have to make because you will lose the ability to bid on certain pieces of work like that. But I don't know how to make the old model work without risk. Uh, what was interesting, I, I taught a PSM class. I think it was a, I was in Dallas, Texas, and it was full of consultants from a company who had recently lost their jobs uh, because their firm committed to a contract that was not achievable. And they got sued so badly, I think it was 500 people were just instantly out of work. Like, it's very risky uh, operating this way. And I, I really hope we, we increase the professionalism in our industry. I hope we move to this more transparent way of working because so many of these projects, like Indiana, like the state of Indiana had to sue a major software provider within the last 10 years because a contract didn't work out. I think we all remember, if you live in the state, there was a major, major um, three-letter, or yeah, three-letter acronym company who basically invented computing that messed up badly, and it was ugly, and I, I hope we move away from that. Do not go out to the no estimates hashtag. Please don't do that on Twitter. If you do that, I'm not responsible. Um, investigate flow metrics, investigate agile contracting. I think there are better ways, but there are risks that you won't be able to bid on some of the, some of the work. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, I think we've, I couldn't agree more. I won't speak for Aptera. I'll speak for myself. I think what yeah. we've figured out is you can predict things like, Hey, this is what your spend will be with this size of team. And we know roughly what velocity of the yeah. team that size is. We know from some past experience, if you're trying to do this, this, and this in a product, that's somewhere between this much time and this much time with a team that has that velocity. So let's just agree it's worth investing that much yeah. to get most of the way through this. Um, we'll evaluate along the way, and we share responsibility together for making sure that that budget and that time gets spent to bring you the most value. Well, look what happens to the relationship when we're in this adversarial contractual position, right? Let's say, you know, C-Ray, I've hired you to, to build a website for me and I am expecting this price on this date or else you're in breach. We're no longer collaborating, right? We're now in this um, offensive, defensive stance. And I, that just poisons projects. Like, I really hope the industry moves away from this kind of thinking that, you know, this contract is supposed to control complexity, I'd rather control complexity through transparent work delivered frequently. I'd rather know up front that what I've asked for is actually more complicated than originally thought, and that gives me options to change direction. I'd rather have a partner rather than, than some combatant that I'm going to end up in court with. Or, you know, I, I, I hope we go there. We'll see, we'll see how things... I think the trend is moving in that direction um, because I'm terrible at predicting the future. I don't know about... If I could predict the future, I'd... I'd buy a lotto ticket and buy an island. Like, I, you, I wouldn't be on this video. I would, we are so bad at trying to predict the future. And these contracts can go, ugh, rant over. Let's move on. <laughs> um, open it up again uh, to the audience here for questions or comments or concerns. And remind, uh, if you're watching either live on YouTube or you're catching up with us after the fact, to subscribe. Uh, to Aptera's YouTube channel so you'll know when we go live again and uh, so you'll know when we post other videos and go check out this book Fixing Your Scrum uh, check out some of the other content that Ryan produces if you like the conversation that's happening here this conversation keeps going after this broadcast and uh, and if you don't reach out with a question now but afterwards you say why didn't I ask X yeah you know, find, reach out, find them on Twitter um, or any number of other channels. But I'll only answer it if you subscribed to the Aptera channel and hit that bell so you get all the alerts. So if you do that, I'll answer the question. He'll be checking <laughs> every one of them. Well, I, for one, I'm glad that you can't tell the future are not on an island and you were here with us this <laughs> evening. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll give, give you guys another minute or two. Anybody raise your hand and interrupt me. Otherwise, uh, oh, oh, here we go. Before I start the closeout, Jessica. Uh, just real quick. Uh, cool. Yeah. So the question is around um, as far as the, the sprint review, you know, avoiding it, drifting into a demo and, and really how can Scrum, how can the whole, how can everyone just make that into a better event? Is that fair? Okay. So a demo is a small part of a, so a sprint review. Let me step back in case you're not uh, familiar too much with Scrum. A sprint review is an opportunity to take, at the, take a look at the work that was done during a sprint. And the, the Scrum team attends, stakeholders, uh, subject matter experts, customers, 
anyone interested in the outcome of the product is a potential attendee of this event. And so what usually happens, like one of the big anti-patterns we talk about in the book is that this drifts into a demo. Well, we're just going to show the work and then everyone can applaud and we go have lunch and move on, right? And that's a really horrible sprint review. Like that is not valuable. Like that is uh, totally antithetical to the purpose of the event. What we're trying to do with the sprint review is really have this collaborative working session between the scrum team and the stakeholders and those, those people interested with, in the outcome to learn more about how the product's doing in the marketplace, to hear about how budgets are doing. Can you imagine talking about budgets in front of developers? Isn't that crazy? But actually, shouldn't a developer know that every time they touch a keyboard, they're spending someone else's money and actually hold themselves to a higher bar uh, to, be higher, to have more accountability, thinking that, wow, every time I write a line of code, I've spent someone's money, am I spending it well, right? Uh, how about having a conversation during the sprint review about uh, how the product's being used? How's the revenue looking? What's the, what's the forecast of features that are, that are, that are coming? Like, or even the devs saying, look, this sprint was really hard and explain to the stakeholders like the difficulties behind the technology and, and see if there's options and different ways to approach it. This is a collaborative working session. The purpose is to get the latest and greatest information about the products, the markets, possible feature ideas into the product backlog so that we go into the next sprint with the best information possible so that we know exactly what we need to build because we're so focused and aligned to the customer and we get that through that event. And so part of it is just knowledge and training. I think so many product owners and, and for that matter, scrum teams just believe a demo is the way to go. But once we explain to them that no, it's so much more, let's set an agenda. Let's have a scrum master partner with a product owner and really figure out you know, are we actually prepared? Product owner, do you have your budget ready and can you present it? Do you know what the next few features you're expecting to release are? Do you know what some sprint goals that could be? Even, we don't want to plan too far ahead, but can we give a preview of what we're thinking? Can we reiterate the product vision so that everyone's on board? Can we take a look at this product backlog and see if it's the right product backlog for the current situation? And like all of those discussions, like we can prompt as scrum masters, the product owner to, to be prepared and then tee up these conversations as we go. And as you do that, I think what you'll find is the demo is just such a small piece of that whole discussion. And in fact, you'll actually hear, and I've seen this a number of times in the past where the, the stakeholders are like, no, skip the product. Like we want to talk about the future direction. We want to talk about these market opportunities. We want to talk to the dev team about how the product's being used today and to see if new things are possible tomorrow. It's a very rich conversation, but it takes intention to get it there. I think a scrum master being a solid partner to a product owner is a great first step. It's awesome. Question answered? Addressed? We see a thumbs up. All right. Uh, any other questions, thoughts? Yeah. So the, the question is around uh, these development teams who have basically turned into uh, backlog lumberjacks. That's a, that's a phrase from Kalpesh Shaw. He gives a really cool... Uh, conference talk. I'm sure that it's available on YouTube. Check it out. Kelpesh Shaw, he, he coined that term. Um, and I think the question is two tips to get out of that mode. And I think connecting the developers back to the why is so essential. I, I, was, I was working at a startup up in Chicago and I remember there was a really cool story told about there was this dev team that was unsure why they were doing their work. And so they took them out to where it was a train yard. So this was predictive analytics. Um, they were trying to figure out um, if you, they were trying to write software, and they actually not trying, they did write software that could potentially predict when a train engine would fail on a track. And so they wanted to go out and do, they just, but they weren't sure why. Like, how is this helpful? How is this useful? And so a really smart product owner uh, got these people onto a bus, took them out to a train yard, and let them just watch people use the application they built. Right? So here's how they're using this iPad app, and it's showing them where parts are in the inventory bays, and it's showing the tools they need and the procedure to repair and remove this part. Um, and it just kind of it, it let them talk to real people with real problems who are using their product to solve them. And that in and of itself was pretty amazing. Um, but what was also amazing was they observed that a train was being revved up in the back of the, the train yard. And there was a question of why you do that. And there's some regulations around testing, you know, engines for per fit for purpose. And so one of the engineers, not train engineer, software engineer, they said, hey, wait a minute. If we have data of all of your trains under load. If we could bundle it up into a report, could you not waste the fuel that you're wasting right now on putting this, you know, train on basically a dyno and revving it up? And the answer was yes, we had a new product, right? But this, it was an awesome serendipitous moment. 
Um, another thing that comes to mind, uh, I worked at um, a company here uh, in the Midwest and there was apathy and people were just kind of doing their jobs and going through the motions. And then, so the CEO, this was orthopedics, this was medical device. The CEO sensed that very, very brilliant man. And uh, he was like, you know what? I have to combat this. And so at the time, uh, minimally invasive surgeries were brand new. Um, and it was just coming on the market and the tooling and all of the new products were just coming out. And uh, he went and he had uh, patients with this new technology filmed, but he picked very specific people. He basically found like the all-American grandma, right? This could have been anyone's grandmother. And she's like the, 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 the matriarch of the family. She's holding like, she, she hosts family dinner every week. There was this amazing true backstory of this, of this wonderful woman where she was like kind of the, the glue for the family and just like, like that bond, like there's like multiple generations of people visiting her in the hospital. And he, get, he, he did this, had this video made of her hip uh, replacement. Normally that's not interesting, but what was fascinating about this was, you know, we had all just spent months working on this, um, whether it was IT or, or whatever group you were in, this was like the company focus. They showed her getting out of bed and walking on day one which is unheard, was unheard of in the industry back then, right? Like if you had a hip replacement at an advanced age, like you were in bed for weeks, like you were not getting up. She walked uh, because it was minimally invasive, new tooling, new... And everyone was just like on fire after that. Like they were just, oh, this is why our work's important. You know, I think if you can get people linked back to that purpose, whether it's taking them to a train yard and showing them how their, their app's being used or show them how they just you know, changed the life of a family. They brought like one of the most important people and it's the glue of the family back to family dinner sooner. Like, I think that stuff's really, really important. Um, if you want the science behind all of that, Dan Pink's drive is a, you know, people need autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And what I've talked about is purpose, but like autonomy and mastery, give people the ability to level up just like the video games. Let us work on our skills. Let us level up but autonomy means we decide how best to do our work. And fortunately, all these things are built into the Scrum framework, right? But I think that purpose, like if you understand why you're on this planet and what your job on this planet is and how you are trying to impact and change lives, your work is, I mean, the work just becomes joyful and easy, right? Cool. Yeah, I think there's something to be said there for not only getting all the members of the development team together and on the same page, um, I don't know. They're going to, they're going to have disagreements about how to implement something or even what to work on at times. But yeah. if you can get everybody believing the same, why it breaks down, I think a lot of the barriers that get in the way of, you know, lock people up and then going outside the dev team, getting your product owner and the rest of the business and it or development or getting everybody on the same page that way. There's no better way to do that than to say, we're all trying to achieve the same mission here. Like we all want to see the world change in the same way, regardless of what happens in the code or what happens in the interface. Yeah. All of that stuff is so unimportant uh, when you see the why, right? If you can, if you can, I, I, I agree. I totally agree with you, C. Ray. If you can keep the why as the focus, things tend to fall into place. But I mean, to just tie back uh, to our previous conversation, a scrum master who isn't sensing that the why has been lost is not helping their team. Like that's why we have to step up our games as scrum masters. We have to become amazing at our craft or else so many of these, I mean, people call it soft skills. I think that's nonsense. These are amazing skills. The ability to understand uh, the moment when your team's purpose has been lost. So critically important. Oh, so many bad things happen as a result of that. And the ability to recognize that. I mean, it's a big reason why we wrote this book. It's how do we as Scrum Masters support the people that we've been given the honor of serving? And uh, if we can get that right, so many awesome product delivery things are possible. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thanks so, so much for being here. Yeah. Talking a little bit about the book. Um, you can check out Fixing Your Scrum. You can order it from pragprog.com digitally. You can also order paperback from Amazon. Um, you can find Ryan on his podcast agile for humans you yeah. can find him on twitter you can find him all over the web um, and engage him in conversation uh if you are watching live hit the subscribe button uh if you're watching after the fact hit the subscribe button <laughs> we'd love to keep talking to you uh and thanks so much uh, everybody that was here live and in person and thanks so much to everybody that was live on youtube today uh,
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I've I've always loved the Aptera story. I mean, I hope you guys throw it into a book someday. I think it's just such a wonderful Midwest story, and the and the work that you guys do for companies. I mean, here and all over the country, it's just amazing. So it's an honor to be a part of this, and, and just thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. Signing out. You're listening to Agile for Humans with Ryan Ripley. Learn more at ryanripley.com. Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you. Todd, myself, and Will Seeley have put together an evidence-based leadership course. Now, this one's really exciting for us. As you all know, Todd and I and Will, we're all huge on evidence-based management. We think it is the next big innovation in the Agile space. But what we've noticed is the application at multiple levels has been troubling, at least for certain organizations. And what we want to do is make it simpler. And so evidence-based leadership is the course to come to if you want to get immersed into data-driven decision-making, the ability to actually validate that value is being delivered, to look at your ability to innovate and to deliver to the marketplace, and to actually identify and act on opportunities in the market that you may not know about. And closing that satisfaction gap with your customers, finding new channels, and using data to drive those decisions rather than guesses, hunches, and conjecture. And so we want you to join this course. We've got multiple offerings coming up this year. The link is simple. It's agileforhumans.com slash EBL course. Jump in there. Use the code agile4humans, the number four, and you can take uh, 15% off the price of the class. So not only is it a new offering that we've discounted already, go ahead and take another 15% off because you're a valued listener. We can't wait to see you there.